Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's a new book out called Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, and it is, of course, in part, the story of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, but also about the mysteries of his involvement with Boston that year, and the kind of story of 1968 in Boston, which had really gone untold. And the writer of that book is named Ryan Walsh, and we have Ryan with us today. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So how did you get started on this story? Because you live in Boston, you love Astral Weeks, and those things kind of came together, didn't they? Right. So the story almost, for me, starts back in 2001, I believe, when I first bought the album and listened to it, which was um, also just a kind of a random happenstance thing. I was I was a sad, lonely fella at that time, and I was buying a lot of records, and I saw the cover and the title of that and didn't know anything about it. It was like, I think I need to hear this today. And then it was just a, that album was like kind of medicine for me. I just kept listening and listening, and I didn't get tired of it. And um, it grew into a real love for the album. And then, of course, I saw those references to local places here in Massachusetts on the back cover, which led me to ask, what the heck's going on here? And it turned out that uh, Van Morrison had conceived Astral Weeks during a a sojourn in in Boston, and he was there for a very idiosyncratic reason. He was essentially hiding out. What happened? (laughs) Well, right. I mean, and and this took a long time to piece together and figure out, but, you know, um, eventually I learned that him and his new wife, Janet Planet, kind of fled New York to Boston because they band had a Bang Records contract that was bad just from a, a money point of view, but also Bang Records had some unsavory uh, associates um, connected with the mob, and some of those people were starting to smash guitars over Van's head and leave bullet holes in his hotel door. So they decided, maybe let's get out of here. <laughs> so I guess, you know, the best estimation is that a manager named Richard brought them here because uh, he was just operating independently, kind of threw him a lifeline. It was an unlikely place for them to go or try to rebuild a career, which is what he did here. But, you know, early uh, 1968, they moved to Green Street in Cambridge and um, right up through the end of August when he starts making the record. Uh, He has that address here, and a lot happened here. You actually spoke to the the alleged mobster in question. What happened there? Carmine Waffle Denoya, R.I.P. I I visited him at his apartment in Manhattan. I cold-called him, and he answered the phone, Hello, City Morgue. So I was like, okay, I think (laughs) he's got a sense of humor about this. But um, that said, I did take a friend of that interview. So, um, but you know, he was, um, he, he was, uh, you know, of course an older gentleman, but he still remembered exactly what the deal was. He was, you know, he doesn't see what he did as anything wrong. He was like, Van better salute me if he ever sees me again. I got him, I made his music career, you know, like just kind of a boastful, wild, inaccurate claim. But you know, this guy was a prime reason why they uh, fled New York and went to Boston. And Van had, of course, had an enormous hit with Brown Eyed Girl, and yet here he was in yeah. this in this limbo. 
So it was a pretty big hit, radio hit. You know, one of the things Van does a lot of in Cambridge and Boston is borrow people's phones to argue about where the hell is the brown-eyed girl money. <laughs> like, everyone has a story about, like, oh, there's, you know, Van's just screaming at someone, and it's because he hasn't gotten paid for brown-eyed girl. And also, you know, oh, and, and Burt Burns, the producer uh, of that song and the owner of Bang Records, uh, died in late 67. So Van was really afloat, didn't know how to re- restart his career. I mean, people would recognize when he performed Brown Eyed Girl, oh, that's that guy. But he was by no means a household name and really kind of floundering. And he started a, a group, or at least performed under the name, the Van Morrison Controversy. Yeah, that's one of my favorite details. I mean, it's, it's this weird band name that he only uses while he's here in Boston called the Van Morrison Controversy. And the Van Morrison Controversy goes through three distinct lineups in, uh, you know, basically one spring, summer. And the third one that he finally lands on after he has that dream about there being no more electricity, uh, electric instruments or electricity in the world, he tells his bandmates he has this dream, and then he kicks out the drummer, and then everyone goes acoustic, and then it so- starts sounding a lot like what we hear in Astral Weeks. Let's talk about Astral Weeks for a minute. And again, your book is broader than this. It, you know, you you wrote a wonderful article for Boston Magazine that was really just about the Astral Weeks aspect. What, but what you do is you use sort of Astral Weeks as a doorway into that year in Boston, which turns out to have a, a number of amazing stories. That's true. Yeah, when I wanted, when we decided to expand it into a book, we made up some rules about how to tell the story. And, you know, Van is one of our major narrators or, or characters who brings us through the story. But everything has an anchor in 1968 in the city of Boston. And what was cool is even when we do drift over to other stories, often they have a connection to Van and his time here. Now, the album itself, Astral Weeks, is, you know, it, it has a, a sort of mystic quality. I think people are right. entranced by it, are obsessed with it are confused by it because it it does seem like the product of some kind of channeling. And one of the things we learn is, is Van's interest in sort of the occult and white magic, which it turns out he shared with Lou Reed and the Velvet yeah. Underground, who were yep. also essentially a Boston band around that time, which people don't realize they played more in Boston than they did in New York. And then it, you found that it, evidence that they may have had a conversation about voices in their heads, which Van suddenly went talked about right at a gig. Right. I didn't find any evidence of them hanging out when they were both, you know, kind of basically here in Boston. Sure. But, but Van, you know, he'd be very interested in, like, the occult arts and channeling and, and you know, spiritualism and kind of incorporating that into his songwriting, so much so that sometimes people ask him about a song he wrote, and he said, I didn't write that. It just came through me. But, yes, then, you know, because I spent so much time with Lou Reed, when I found that connection that in the 90s at this kind of rambling show at a New York City supper club, Van just started kind of talking about how hard fame is, and it makes you kind of lose it. And and then he's like, you know, I got some great advice from Lou Reed. He told me what to do when you hear the voices. Just say, that's not me, man. That's not me. Mel Lyman was a figure, and the Lyman family, it didn't really directly intersect with Van Morrison, but it's this thing that was looming in, in Boston, the fact that the underground newspaper was called Avatar, right? And it was founded and run by this semi-cult and this guy, Mel Lyman, who believed he was God. Right. <laughs> There's, 
And and that's our other kind of major character in the book is that Mel Lyman and Van Morrison, they were on the same record label, lived a couple miles apart, both like pursuing spiritual spiritualism, spirituality through music, and then end up in really different places. And I thought, well, that's like a great yin and yang to tell this story. Um, so Mel Lyman, kind of a famous folky harmonica banjo player, was there at like, you know, uh, Tim Leary's house when they first started experimenting with LSD, kind of like a zealot figure. You know, he's visiting uh, Woody Guthrie in the hospital before he died. And anyways, he, um, after Bob Dylan went electric, Newport 65, Lyman kind of storms the stage and does this eulogy for, uh, you know, folk music, essentially playing like a 20-minute harmonica solo. And that's how the book, <laughs> that's how the book starts with that moment, because everyone knows the story of Dylan go electric, going electric, and everyone knows that was an exciting action for so much. But, you know, to learn what happened directly after it was brand new to me and kind of shocking, and that's where the Lyman story starts. But there was there was sort of something in the air in Boston, and I think part of the thesis is that it probably crept in to the magic of Astral Weeks was possibly somewhat formed by what was going on in Boston. Isn't that sort of what was on your mind to an extent? Sure, I do. I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to pinpoint these things, but I'm pretty sure he wrote the title track, Astro Weeks, in Boston. And, you know, that's such a different, lyrically, such a different departure for him. And he talked about seeing astrologers and psychics here. I mean, the, the city was pretty, there was like an occult boom. And, you know, even 100 years before that, the city was known for that, too. So there was this history here of kind of like... Um, literally a, a ghost town, just where people would go to reach the astral plane, Boston, go go visit one of many famous mediums. And in 68, it kind of re-emerges in the counterculture. Kids are, the kids were like, uh, you know, basing their lives on astrology and, you know, Avatar newspaper being one of the main mouthpieces for that point of view. And Van had, from childhood, had an experience of leaving his body, right? Right, yeah. In, in some interviews, he's talked about childhood visions, leaving his body, not having being an only child, not having anyone to talk about it with, and so he would try to explain those experiences through songwriting, which is why an album called Astral Weeks, if you think about that moment, seems an important piece of that puzzle, you know what I mean? He was writing in this uh, house with Janet, his wife, who he dubbed Janet Planet, Right. Well, seemed to be serving almost as a sort of producer with him. You know, he, he, she was really facilitating and editing the songwriting, right? How did all that work? Yeah, that's one of the things I love about this is that <clears throat> it's a true group effort with a lot of people who deserve a little or a lot of credit. And Janet Planet on Green Street there in Cambridge was, you know, Van is kind of zoning out in front of a tape recorder, strumming chords, moaning melodies, and then letting that roll for 40 minutes. And then she's playing it back and pointing out which parts are good songs, writing down the lyrics, putting them in a binder. And she's kind of collating the songs in this binder, and that binder actually is taken to the Astral Week sessions and becomes pretty important when they're trying to find the closing number for the album. She had a great quote to you, which is, being a muse is a thankless job and the pay is lousy. Yeah, and that quote really hits me. I mean, of course it is. <laughs> you know, it's um they really fell into that relationship where she's on the album covers, she's writing the liner notes, you know, turning their life into a fairy tale. 
And it's easy to lose track of what's real when you start to do that with someone. You know, she told me that when she hears Brian Eyed Girl over the radio, over the PA at a grocery store, she tries to get out of there. The other relationship, or among the other relationships that Van Morrison had going at that time was a friendship with Peter Wolf. And Peter Wolf ended up being quite a colorful source for you for uh, your original article and for this book. Explain right. how all that worked. And also when, who Peter Wolf is for our Sure. Listeners. Well, everyone knows Peter Wolf is the uh, singer for the Jay Giles Band, um, you know, legendary band. They're from Boston here. And Peter at the time was in a band called the Hallucinations. And him and Van hit it off right away. And um, Peter was an overnight DJ at WBCN, which was a brand new free-form radio station that played psychedelic rock. Peter's overnight shifts, he would stay up all night with Van, playing blues and rock records. And the rumor that really got me excited was that Peter made a recording of the last of the three lineups of the Van Morrison controversy, and that recording was rumored to kind of reveal that this sound of what would end up on Astro Weeks was here in that line up at the end of the summer here. So Peter was nice enough to have me over, and uh, we had a great interview, great chat. He gave you like a Van Morrison quiz first, right? He, gave he me, did, yeah. He wanted to make, yeah. I mean, I get it. You know, everyone, no one wants to waste their time, so he was making sure I'd done my homework. And But then, uh, you know, halfway into the night, he points behind my head, he says, there are the tapes. And to me, you know, I, my eyes widened like it's the holy grail <laughs> that I'm searching for. And, you know, I said, "Could would you ever let me hear these? And he said, sure, we did, but they have to be digitized first professionally, you know. And that gave me a lot of hope. And then that hope kind of vanished because I could, after that night, which seemed to go so well, he wouldn't really talk to me again. So a lot of the book is me trying desperately to find those tapes or some other audio or video of one of Van's Boston lineups. And in the end, without uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but you actually do in the end. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. We'll just say there's a de- definite resolution to that storyline, and I I hope it's satisfying to people. Yeah. All right, buy the book and read the end, and you'll and you'll find out, people. So just to continue the story of the album itself, we were talking about the the Van Morrison controversy as a thing. I mean, part of the thing is it was at one point a very loud and raucous electric band, which is very funny. Considering where yeah, it went. I mean, for, for a lot of the summer, the young musicians are kind of trying, uh, John Sheldon, guitarist in particular, just trying to kind of turn them into like a some kind of pre-punk band, just like feedback and trying to knock over cymbal stands with his guitar. And, you know, he describes the summer of those shows as on the edge of madness. I mean, there was one instance where Van actually refused to perform because there weren't enough people there and then the owner of the club in Boston was on stage with him and they were just arguing about money on stage part of the show <laughs> which is just I mean when you talk about when you talk about people who are legends now and stories that really illuminate what it was like before they became that legend stuff like that is really um just kind of perfect he was a difficult cat Van Morrison right I mean he he was hard to deal with yeah, I mean, people, you know, a lot of people have the stories like he was so nice to me, but he could also, you know, lie down on stage and refuse to sing or, or you know, other, you know, just kind of a lot of stories of acting out and, uh, you know, kind of crazy requests. And, uh, you know, Joe, Joe Smith at Warner Brothers, I believe he demanded he 
Warner Brothers deliver him a number one record, which is another thing that really fascinates me about Astro Weeks. It's like he was desperate for money and wanted to revive his career, but makes kind of one of the artiest records of all time. <laughs> you know, it's not pop three-minute radio hits. It's these seven-minute stretched-out jams. Um, I, surely no one thought was going to be the next radio hit, but that's what's so cool about the late 60s is Sometimes the artiest stuff is also, you know, kind of the most famous. It's a cousin to some of the Dylan records, I think, of Blonde on Blonde in the sense that it's a guy strumming an acoustic guitar with fairly simple chords and then people creating this fantasia around him, other musicians embellishing in this incredible way. And, you know, whereas Dylan worked with sort of Nashville guys, uh, Van Morrison ended up with jazz players and one of them was John Payne, who we're about to talk to. John Payne played flute and a little bit of sax on the album, and, and John was a, a Boston guy, right? He sure was, yeah. He was on and off at Harvard, and um, he'll tell you uh, himself, just you know, in love with jazz and playing a lot, and um, didn't realize he was playing with Van, the Van Morrison until he was on stage with him playing Brown-Eyed Girl, <laughs> which is a weird way to figure out who you're playing with. And that first show that John played with Van was at the Catacombs, which is this subterranean club on Boylston Street in Boston in the late 60s, and that's, um, you know, where those recordings Wolf made. Those shows, those are it. But otherwise, I mean, there are people, most famously Richard Davis played bass on that album, and he was already a jazz legend, and he kind of replaced the, the local bass player that Van was playing with, right? Right, so what happens is Louis Merenstein from Warner Brothers comes to Boston to audition Van, Here's the title track, which apparently is a brand new song at that time. Starts crying and says, let's do this. We're making this record. But Lewis also has a vision and tells Van, Van wanted to record it with this Boston trio. And he said, no, I have this thing in mind. It's these New York jazz guys. I'm sorry. Warner Brothers will pay for them to kind of sit on the couch and watch this thing get made. But we're going to do this my way. And when Morrison told the fellas, they were kind of heartbroken. But John is such a, a hero of the story, I think, because he is very persistent and in the studio talks his way onto uh, Astral Weeks. And as a matter of fact, we have John Payne right now. Hey, John. Hey. We also have Ryan Walsh on the line, and thanks so much hey, for Ryan. being here. Hey, John. So we were just telling the story. You had, you had been playing with Van in Boston. And yeah. you had grown attached to these songs that would uh, be on, on Astral Weeks. Is that right? Um, yeah, but I didn't know they were going to be on Astral Weeks. <laughs> and I didn't know that would be the title of the album. And I didn't know the titles of any of the songs I was playing with him. I, he'd just start playing a song. We never rehearsed. And I would just make up stuff that went with it. And he bought it. <laughs> and then what was your reaction when you found out that you know, he was actually going to play with these New York jazz guys instead? I was, the way it actually happened, and this, my memory is foggy, and um, is that we weren't kind of definitely told that. It was kind of insinuated. Like, it wasn't like Van came to us and broke it to us. Now, that maybe that's what he did with Tom or Kilbania, uh, right. yeah. um, the bass player we were playing with. But we went down there, and I can remember Lou saying, well, we're going to the session. And he said, well, you guys will mostly just be digging the session, you know. So I went, oh, he didn't say there'd be a flute player. When I got there for the session... Um, I didn't, you know, I knew there'd be a flute player. I didn't know who it was. In fact, that's one of the mysteries of the album. But yeah. they kind of, kind of more gently broke it to us, as I remember it. Now, 
how did it come to be that you played with him in the first place? What was the story there? The story there is Tom Kilbania, the bass player. Um, I went to a jam session, a jazz jam session, and he was the bass player. And I, I mostly played saxophone. I probably popped out the flute for a number or two. And he starts talking to me about how he's playing with this guy, Van Morrison, and we're going to go to Europe and we're going to make an album and all this stuff. And he's looking for a flute player and you should, you should come down and sit in with us when we are playing the catacombs in a couple of weeks. So I went, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, I'll do that. And, uh, I don't think I had Tom's number or anything. And, um, I asked around some people said, oh yeah, he's a real person. You know, this is, it's not, he's not making this up. So, <laughs> um, so I went down and, and sat in with him at, at the catacombs, uh, one night and, uh, uh, there's the long and short version of this, but but basically, when I heard the first set, I heard them play. I was I came in. Tom recognized me. And I was talking to him, and Van said hello to me. And it, he seems kind of cold and distant. And I went, oh, I'm thinking to myself, Tom's just making this up. He's he's not going to let me sit in. He's not, you know, this is just Tom's idea that he's looking for me, and it'd be a good idea for me to come down. But I listened to the first set, and I didn't particularly like it at all. And I felt <laughs> Van didn't want me there, and I almost left. But at the end of the first set, Tom came right up to me and started talking to me all during the, the intermission between the sets. And then when they're about to go on again, Van said, would you like to sit in with us? And I said, sure. So I got up there on stage, and he started singing and um, playing. And on stage, and this happens to me often when I'm playing with a pop or rock person, I'm mostly a, a jazz musician, but and it's sometimes hard for me to kind of get into that space. But when I'm on stage with somebody, I'm much more likely to do that. And so I really got off and I got the feeling he was listening to me. He heard everything I played and his phrasing was reacting to it, which is something new to me. I'd never played with anyone of that caliber before. So at the end of the first song, I'm going, wow, this is great. This is great. And the second song in that set was Brown Eyed Girl. Mm. He starts playing that and suddenly I realize, wait a minute, he's not covering somebody's song here. This is the guy. <laughs> you know, I'd heard the song, and I liked the song, and I had no idea who sung it. I just heard it on this jukebox in this place I used to eat lunch at a lot. And I go, oh, there's that great song again. So, so I went, oh, I guess this guy is for real, even though I'm sitting here in a sub-basement. It wasn't even the basement. It was the basement below the basement this club was in, I'm pretty sure. Ryan, is that right? Yeah, I think it was. I think because I remember going down a lot of stairs to get there, not just one flight. So I think it was the basement to the basement. That's where Band had sunk to, and there's about 40 or 50 people there. Yeah. And um, so I played the end of that set. He asked me if I wanted to come back. I said, sure. And then the second night, I played the whole night, and um, he asked me if I wanted to join the band. I said, yeah. And that's that's how I got on it. This recording of this album is to a certain extent shrouded in mystery people are very interested in how it all happened right. so how did it all happen what, I can yeah. remember this very well because it was the first recording session I'd ever done I'd been playing flute for about six months huh. um, I'd been playing saxophone for about two years and before that clarinet for about ten years and I, so I was kind of a newbie but I was into jazz, and one thing that wasn't, I think, in, in, in uh, Ryan's book is we didn't just come down and hang around. We came out, we, we were playing as a trio out at the Cafe Ogogo a lot, and Steve Paul's seeing these two clubs that were there. So we, we played a lot in person, So um, and Lou Merenstein would come down and see us a lot of the time and shake our hands and say that was great and whatever. Um, and the album happened, I believe that the album sessions were at least three or four weeks because they were in October, I think we came down in early September. So we've been down there for a few weeks. First, we stayed at the Chelsea Hotel, and then ended up, Tom and I ended up rooming together with my older brother, 
um, in the Upper West Side for a while. And so um, we just kept hearing about this recording was happening and the European tour. They didn't know what was happening with that because um, Van had visa problems. So we're sitting around playing these guest sets at the Cafe Ogogo. Here's the guy who had Brown Eyed Girl out two years before as a big top 40 hit. And you put his name outside of the Cafe Ogogo on Bleecker Street in, in New York, and three or four or eight people would show up to watch us play the set. Wow. Wow. And that's where it was at. So I found out early how low you could go, how hmm. quickly, in the music business. Yeah. So what were the sessions like for the album? What did you see? What did you experience? Well, I remember getting the session, and um, there's Richard Davis, who I'd heard of. But not being a bass player, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to bass players. And um, the first session had no drums on it. Uh, it was Richard Davis, this, this guitar player named Jay Berliner, a flute player who is yet to be figured out who the heck he was, <laughs> and Van. And Van was in a, a separate booth with his guitar in, in a vocal booth, and the rest of the musicians were out in the uh, studio area, the big studio area. And I remember being in the control book booth and just thinking this stuff was fantastic. It's just unbelievable how good it sounded. I mean, it, sound, it sounded good sometimes as a trio, but when you flesh it out with, um, with the sound of, just the sound of Richard Davis' face, he had this amazing bass. The sound of it alone was unbelievable. Um, and then they just were improvising well, and the flute player was good. I just kept saying to Lou, I can do as well as he can do. I was a young <laughs> upstart, 22-year-old, didn't know my place. And I, <laughs> I said to him a bunch of times, and he just ignored me. And then finally, everyone came in after the, what they thought was the last take, and they're sitting around and trying to decide what if they should play um, another tune before they wrap it up. They said, let's play another tune, and they decided to do Astral Weeks. I'm not sure that they thought that was going to be the title of the album, or, or because they seemed to come up with that. They didn't play it in the first four takes, the first four or five they did, or whatever they did. And then Lou just turns to me, let's, let's, uh, let's have Payne play on this one. Mm. And which completely startled me. I thought I'd lost that battle long ago, you know, because uh -huh. he didn't say anything and he had his men out there. And the problem was I didn't have a flute with me. <laughs> so I had to go to the flute player who was playing and say, can I borrow your flute? And the guy said, no, man, I just want to go home. And I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> You've got to let me have your flute. No, man, I want to go home. It's late. They've probably, probably done two other sessions that day. You know, I just want to get home. And I just would not take no for an answer. There's no way I was going to let this you know, go by. And I just wouldn't take no for an answer and finally let me borrow his flute. Wow. And that's what we hear on the album, that take, that moment. That, an Astral Week's just me playing flute, yeah. Yep. Um, let's on the other guy's flute. <laughs> Actually, his flute was better than mine. I wish I had, I wish I had his flute for the rest of the album. But, but after that, they decided they'd save a little money and get rid of that guy and use me because they thought I was, I was good enough. And let's hear that for one moment, the title track of Astral Week's. Sure. And, yeah, let's hear it. And if anyone wants to know where the flute comes in, at 055 I start playing. But of course, they won't know when it's 055. I think we're, I think we're starting right there. Let's hear it. Okay. From the far side of the ocean Have I put the wheels in motion Did I stand with my heart There you are. Me. Yep. Hmm. The door. Left ear. Yeah. <laughs> Could you I couldn't ease my way in, you know, I didn't want to make a big entrance or anything, but the, one of the great things about the, the backing of this is this Jay Berliner are playing these lines, and I'm playing these lines, and we're playing two different lines of different kinds of different melodic contact, while Van is singing a melody on top, and yet 
it doesn't sound too busy. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't sound wrong for a lot of reasons, I think. One is that Jay was just a terrific player, and I not, was not in his category, but, you know, I knew how to leave space, and I knew how to be appropriate, and that, that saved me on this. And, uh, and Van's voice is so strong, it, it would take an incredibly strong line screaming at you in order to get in the way of that voice because he just lays it out like it's, you know... Like it's chiseled in stone. So was Van locked away in a vocal booth, and you guys were out on the on a, in a live room? Is that the is that the way it worked? We, we were in a live room. Van was in a vocal booth the whole all, all three sessions. He was in he was in a vocal booth um, with his guitar, and he barely ever talked. I'm not sure he even ever talked to the musicians. <laughs> um, the arranger uh, Larry Fallon came out and gave them chord sheets, you know, but his, his courses things are very simple. And in fact, actually, if you listen very carefully, I think on Ballerina, and I think there's one other song, you'll hear Richard Davis very confidently play the wrong route on a chord. Huh. <laughs> uh, and it's because he's reading the shot sheet, but Van just decided not to do it that way. You also played uh, soprano sax on uh, Slim Slow Slider. How did that come about? You no, know, I can't remember exactly. I can't remember whether I'd ever played soprano sax live with Van I, and fooling around jamming I had, but for some reason, it was the third session, I brought the soprano sax with him, and I think we'd never done Slim Slow Slider before. They're looking for one more tune to do at the end of the night. And they started, Van started running it down, and it just felt right for me to pick up soprano sax. And then Brooks Arthur, um, the engineer, put this, this echoey sound on it, it sounded like it was coming from across a lake or something. So it didn't sound quite like a soprano sax. It sounded a little bit flute-like and a little bit ethereal and otherworldly. And since, um, you know, there's a lot about life and death in there, it, was, it kind of worked. And then Lou Marinci, that's what I said, he wanted everyone to come in to the control room other than me and Richard Davis and, and Van, which is a brilliant idea because um, uh, it just worked. It just it was another texture when you had less people i mean sometimes less is more especially by contrast when you've got so much on going on where um it was very busy the whole recording and suddenly you get to this last track and it's like very sparse and it's about death and dying and it just worked and that whole thing where we if you on the extended version with all that improvising in different forms and including van improvising single string that was not planned it was not a word ever said about that that just happened and let's hear a little bit of uh, Slim Slow Slider. There you are. <laughs> yep, there it is, across the lake, the ethereal sound. How does it feel to hear this stuff now? Depends on my mood. I mean, I've, I've heard it a little bit lately, and I've, I've gone periods of five or ten years without hearing it at all, but, but lately I've been listening to it because of these interviews and things. It's, um, I don't know if I can express it in a word, mm. um, but I'm... Astral Weeks and Slim Slow Slider, I'm very proud of what I did in those, and I, I think I was actually, because of the context of the situation and the quality of the musicians, I think I was playing a little over my head, <laughs> better than I could re- really play usually. Um, on Sweet Thing, I did okay, but you know, it wasn't really a vehicle for the kind of playing that I could do, so that's okay, but it's a great song, but I don't think the flute part is anything wonderful. And then on Ballerina and Lo- Young Lovers Do, I played flute on those, and they decided to get rid of the flute because they had a horn section and a string section they wanted to put in instead. But since the mics were in a live room, they couldn't get completely rid of the flute. So if you listen carefully to Young Lovers Do and to Ballerina, in, in some quiet sections you can hear a little bit of flute playing in the background that they couldn't <laughs> kill because it leaked into the drums or, the, or someone else's mic. That's great. The live thing. So I kind of played on those two. 
And, and John, before we let you go, what, if anything, was your post-Astral Weeks experience with Van? Um, well, we kept playing around town and stuff, and um, somewhere around, I think, end of November, beginning of December, I, I slowly became, it became less fun. In the beginning, I just absolutely loved it, and then I liked it, and then it was pretty good. I mean, talking about the live playing, but because his songs are structurally similar, and there weren't, weren't really doing any arrangements other than me just ad-libbing, I kind of, ran, kind of ran out of juice of what I could do and feel excited about in the format. And so I was starting to musically get get not challenged enough, and I, and I eventually quit. And there you I go. I quit playing with him. And I, I always wondered, what would have happened if I stayed on? I would have been the guy on Moondance, you know? Mm. And in those days, the first 10 or 20 or 25 years after that album, that was a big thing because no one had ever heard of Astral Weeks until the early 90s except for a very small insider group of people. John Payne, thank you so much for joining us. And oh, no problem. We'll be right back with more. We're talking to Ryan Walsh, who has a new book out called Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. And as we've been saying, it's about the making of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, but it's about a lot more. It's about that year in Boston. And there's a lot of different threads in it, Ryan. One of the alternate threads that was really interesting is the famous, but perhaps not told as deeply as you did, story of how James Brown stopped riots in Boston after Martin Luther King was murdered. And it basically involved a live TV broadcast of his concert and then a rebroadcast of it and the city paying possibly as much as $60,000 to James Brown to make up for what he thought were uh, missing ticket sales if he broadcast it live. What struck you in your reporting on that story? What struck me about that story is just, I mean, quite literally, music is like saving people (laughs) and it's functioning like magically, kind of literally keeping people safe, which, you know, I, I believe that about music any, anyway. So this literal moment where that can be told through the story was um, something I jumped at. You know, after Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, major cities across the United States were, you know, bracing themselves for terrible riots and unrest. Boston, you know, had a lot of racial problems in the city. And the mayor had no idea who James Brown was. He was booked to play Boston Garden the night after. And they realized, damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, we cancel riots. We don't cancel. It could be trouble inside. So basically, they came up with an idea. What if we broadcast it for free on GBH? A lot of people stay home and watch it. Now, that was a good idea, but James Brown didn't even know about it until he arrived in Boston. And when he was, <laughs> he was pissed because he knew it was going to, a, he didn't approve it. B, he doesn't do anything for free. And C, it's going to cut into his uh, ticket sales. So literally, you know, backstage, James Brown and Mayor Kevin White of Boston are um, arguing about, you know, what are the terms of this deal? Not only, you know, are we going to air it on TV, but Mr. Brown, are you going to go out there and call for peace? Because that's what I need you to do. Just, I mean, can you think of a moment like that? I mean, where music becomes that political instantly it's just it's it's wild to me and he did agree to it of course um which is you know james brown was not necessarily known for his benevolence over the years but he did agree to it and he uh you know he was pretty great in controlling the crowd as well i mean that's that that performance which any of your listeners can google youtube watch the whole concert right now which i really recommend you do 
it's uh, fantastic in, in about eight different ways. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's one of the best live performers in the world. Maybe, you know, certainly at the time, maybe ever. The command he has over his band and the audience, that is just a master at work uh, in that show. And um, I, could, I couldn't stop uh, watching that live concert. It's something else. To uh, conclude the Astral Week story itself, you know, Van Morrison over the years had mixed feelings, it seems, about this album. He seemed like he wasn't sure if it was a masterwork or not, yeah. He would, or if it even was the album he wanted it to be. He made various claims like it was supposed to be an opera. What do you make of all that? I make <laughs> of all that. Well, I'm confused, first of all. I mean, he he almost never says the same thing about that record. It's very interesting to me. And basically, I see his 2008 live performance of the entire album in order as a way to kind of claim what's considered his masterpiece as his own. Um, but, you know, the point the book tries to make is just how much of a collaborative effort this was. Janet, the um, New York musicians, the Boston musicians, Louis Merenstein. If all these things didn't happen in this order, the album would have been different or not exist at all. And so what I find about Morrison being weird about getting, you know, wanting credit for that album is he's also a guy who says he channels songs from somewhere else. So it's like, um, it's funny for someone to say, oh, I channeled that song. It came from a, a spirit. And also I want the credit. Those are, those are opposite things to me. So, and then, you know, he, in that concert, he, he also made Richard Davis. He wanted him to play his bass lines precisely and all that. Right, so two guys from the original studio recording of Astro Weeks are tapped by Van to come back, and the engineer, Brooks Arthur, too, to play, to all come together to do this again in 2008. Now, when Richard Davis showed up, all the parts he improvised 40 years ago, at the time it was 40 years ago, were notated out on sheet music, which, um, as uh, Richard and Lewis told me, is an insane thing to do for that kind of playing. And when Richard just was started doing his own thing, which is he's a genius at, um, he was told to stick to the sheet music, and when he didn't, he was fired. He's not on that live concert album. A typically dark ending to a Van Morrison anecdote. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan Walsh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I highly recommend Ryan's new book, Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. And that's it for today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You should definitely subscribe too. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever if there are other places to leave reviews. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.